0: says, get that India, big boy.
1: Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020, and joining me after something of a CBA-mandated break, we've had our little rest and recharge, and we're back to record on my good boys, Spear on 60s, so I'm going to get him in here with the old signal. News team, assemble! for a distinctly rugby league world cup flavored podcast this week joining me first is my good mate 60s how you doing big fella
0: yeah not doing too bad mate uh, shout out to yoko who's only just flown back over to uh her, visit her family in new zealand yesterday so she's over there for a period of time um hoping that she enjoys herself while she's over there
1: and while i'm representing italy in the rlwc representing greece is our good man spiro how you doing mate how's work treating you
2: Going well, gents. I've enjoyed just switching off just a little bit from the NRL news cycle, just toning things down a little bit, but I've loved every minute of the Rugby League World Cup, and as you said, very proud of the Greeks and their debut World Cup uh, Rugby League World Cup performance, and, and the Italians, well, they did one better and got the win.
1: So let's get right into it, boys. We'll run through the results first, and then we'll go through the games that you want to talk about. Uh, starting the Rugby League World Cup in 2022, I believe it is the 2021 World Cup though, but the Samoan team, wow, you talk about disappointments. They got crushed by England, 60-6. Did not put up a fight at all, despite a star started cast. We will talk about this one for sure. We then go to Australia, who did it very comfortably against Fiji, 42-8. Then uh, moving on to the Italians. We mentioned them in one of the upstarts in the first round. They won over Scotland, 28-4. Very strong result. Ireland, too, good for Jamaica, 48-2. New Zealand, Oh, I wouldn't say East Pass. They uh, were actually asked some questions by the Lebanese, so they won thirty-four to twelve against the Lebanon Cedars, uh, with that simbining or sorry send-off of Adam Douahi being a key point there. We can talk about that too. The French too good for the Greece thirty-four to twelve, but like you said, Spiro, they did not disgrace themselves by any means. Scored a couple of good tries, played some good football. The Tongans. This was nearly a huge ball over here, Papua New Guinea losing eighteen to twenty-four. Uh, hard done by if the bunker or the, the video referral system at the end could have had this one in the bag for them and, and Tonga getting a real wake-up call there. Cook Islands just passed Wales 18-12 to 12 and that is the completion of round one of the World Cup. We do have two more rounds of play to go. We'll talk about them shortly. But out of those games, boys, which one's caught your eye? What do you want to talk about?
2: I guess we kick off with the first match you mentioned there, forty uh, twenty, the The opening match of the World Cup, I stayed up late or into the early hours of... Sunday morning to watch it and I've got to say I was a bit disappointed because heading into this tournament I actually tipped Samoa as a smoky team to possibly go all the way and win it on paper they've got I think eight players featured in the NRL grand final and across the park there's quality you know there's Mm -hmm. quality there so I was expecting them to actually win that match against England I probably underestimated the Poms just a little bit. They are the home team in this World Cup, which plays a huge role in things. But they have a, a solid team there that might well make the grand the final of this World Cup once again. But for Samoa, an extremely disappointing performance to only score the one try and to have 60 points put on them, the most out of any team in the opening round of matches, is, is quite disappointing. So... They're under pressure now. They've got to win their next two matches against Greece and France, which they should do. But heading into the finals, they're a bit shaky. And I think the thing which makes a difference with the Samoan team is their spine. They haven't got the quality 1, 6, 7, and 9 to get them, uh, to you know, put a really good performance together as a team. They've got Jerome Luai, who I rate as a 6, but you've got a not-so-good halfback or and not as experienced or polished halfback in Anthony Milford, who's probably far from his best. Then you've got Joseph Swaliki playing out of position at fullback and then uh, Danny Levi at hooker who's you know been uh, you know the last few years playing in the Super League, hasn't played much NRL. So I think that's where it lets things down for Samoa. They don't have that quality spine. Australia too good for Fiji. Credit to the Bati. They, they put up a fight there, especially in the first half. They stayed in the contest and it's a respectable sort of scoreline considering... Uh, all the injuries that the, the Fijian side had, no Ravalawa, and a few others who went down with injury uh, in the trial match the week before. Italy, as you mentioned, John, off the top too good for Scotland. The Scots, they do have Ewan Aiken, They do have a few uh, a former Eel in Karl Schneider. They've also got Kane Linnett, a, a Premiership winner uh, with the Cowboys. But Italy, they have a lot of good reserve-grade players coming through the ranks. Led by Nathan Brown, what a great game he played. It's, it's important to highlight his performance because I just felt uh, as a ball-playing lock, he stepped up to the plate and really led that team well and deserved a uh, player of the match. Ireland, too good for Jamaica. It's their debut World Cup, uh, the uh, Jamaican side. I don't think you can expect much from them. No NRL players, a few Super League guys. But Ireland, they do have the experience. And Luke Keary steading the ship there in the halves. New Zealand too good for Lebanon, but I thought this was actually one of the best games mm. of the opening uh, matches because the Cedars really did take it to the Kiwis up until when Adam Dwahi went off. The scoreline was very close and they came within six points of the Kiwis. So considering that New Zealand are one of the favourites to win the tournament and looking at their side on the paper, the, the Lebanon side did exceptionally well to, uh, to, to come that close uh, of the Kiwis France, too good for Greece, but Greece, a valiant effort. They're going to struggle to win again. they got Samoa and then they got England, but they showed some fight. Nick uh, Mugios, a brilliant try off a Billy Magulius uh, kick, which is something we've seen in the, the past. The famous especially Billy Magulius yeah, kick, yep. <laughs> We've been on the receiving end of that when Parramatta Reserve Grade went with Magpies, but he, he was brilliant. Uh, Locky Ilias put up a decent fight as well and a few of the, the other young guys. France... They do have the brains of Trenton Robinson behind them and, and players that participate in the Super League through the Catalans and, and, and those teams. So no real surprise. I thought France would win that game. As you mentioned, Mate Tonga just got home against Papua New Guinea. A few controversial refereeing decisions. Mm. The Kumuls are a great team. You know, I, I was really impressed by what I saw from them. They play with a lot of heart, a lot of grit, a lot of determination. And I think that they have what it takes to finish in the top two, progress to the finals, and see what happens. They've got Shane Flanagan in their coaching ranks, uh, and then you look at uh, Cook Islands and Wales. Cook Islands just got home there. Credit to Wales. I thought that they were going to get flogged because when you look at the Cook Islands on paper, once again, they got a quality team. A few surprising things here, though. I mean, Brad Takarangi, the former Parramatta Eel, he came off the bench uh, in that match. Makahisi Makatoa also came off the bench. Show. You've got quality first-graders, Davey Moale, as well. I'm not sure if they did that intentionally because they wanted to maybe arrest their first-graders in a a game which they should win the first match and save them for later on in the tournament and give some of the other young blokes opportunities. I'm not too sure what the strategy was there, but that was probably a big surprise for me. I thought Cook Islands would win and win well, but the Welsh, they they came close. I think the... um
0: I've got a funny feeling Brad Takarangi had just finished some rehab, injury rehab, so it might might have been why he came off the bench. Uh, just a, a, I'll, I'm going to narrow down a couple of things here for uh, my takes on this. I thought the the Tonga and Papua New Guinea match was easily the best match in the, in the first round of pool games. So I thought it was um, a, a really good game of football. And what I want to say about uh, Papua New Guinea is that what they tend to do consistently when they've got a lot of their players in is they look like a, a combination that's familiar with each other. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like they 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 hit the ground running and go close to playing to the best of their ability, um, perhaps a lot quicker than some other teams do. And I, and I do preface that with saying when they've got most of their players available or, or selected in the team because they they had a run uh, not that long ago, but they, they had a lot of in that uh, against the Prime Minister's 13, but that was a very weakened PNG side. That was a PNG 13 as well, wasn't it? It wasn't their, their test it, team. It wasn't their um, test team, no.
1: And one yeah. player from that game that really burst onto the scene was the number nine, Edwin Napapeh. Who oh, had yeah. an absolutely sensational <laughs> run and try assist. and all of a sudden you got. To, mm. I mean, it's not the first time we've seen a PNG player, you know, shine on the World Cup stage and end up getting an NRL contract. I think it was Luke Page going back a few years, signed with the Canberra Raiders after a yep. stellar yep. World Cup, and Apape, who plays for the LA Centurions in the ESL. Well, he could be one that could be sort of catapulting himself towards an NRL contract at this rate if he continues to play as uh, fantastically as he did against uh, Tonga.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, apart from that, uh, Samoa looked like a group of strangers playing together. And I know you touched on the issues around the spine, Spiro. And and I think that the issues around the spine ring true of a lot of the teams. The teams that have the... the and I mean, it's it almost seems like a rugby league truism, isn't it? That it, if you've got a quality spine, you're going to go a long way towards winning the game. And uh, we, we've seen teams at this level that have makeshift players in those, uh, in those positions where they're just looking to fill the position with the best possible player at their uh, disposal. Hence, you see um, someone like Su- uh, uh playing at fullback. And I know he has desires to play at fullback, but as you mentioned, he just really doesn't have that level of experience playing there at NRL level, let alone at international level. And um,
1: unfortunately for Samoa, this feels like a continuation of a disappointing 2017 World Cup where a lot of players came back to their clubs out of shape and, and not in their best condition after a very lacklustre campaign in that particular World Cup. And given their star started squad, they should have done so much better against England. Maybe not at one, because the English obviously aren't chumps. But to get you know, 60 put on you and lose by 54 points, well, that's just a disgrace.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, look, apart from that, um, uh, Jamaica. I mean, that that just basically showed that they they just don't have players that have got any level of experience. And and when it came to their attack, it was almost non-existent because they there just wasn't any shape. There, there was no shape whatsoever in their attack. Um, and as for the uh, New Zealand and Lebanon game, well, really, Lebanon simply pays the penalty for having players in their team that are uh, not first-grade players. Um, um, you know, like if you actually had a, a, a Lebanese team where they weren't um, forced into using uh, blokes who are, you know, maybe running around in uh, reserve grade or lower, um, they'd probably, you know, they, they'd give it a good shake, a real good shake, I think. So that's just a, you know, perhaps that's just a matter of time before... Um, we start to see a few more of their players going. Well, a quick question for Spiro before we move on, Spiro, the Greek team, didn't they have yep. they have something like four or five uh, players that play in the domestic competition
2: in Greece that
0: were that are part of their team?
2: Correct. So basically, in the squad, there are quite a few that play in the, the domestic competition, but in the team for that match, I think there were two. So. You had Aris uh, Dardamanis and Theodoros Nyanyakis. Those two gentlemen both play in the Greek domestic competition. They came off the bench and played limited minutes, but a great opportunity for them. And Mm. when you think about it, eligibility is going to be an issue in the years to come with teams like Greece and Lebanon because the rules state that your grandparent has to be born in the country for you to be eligible to play for them. So someone like Mitchell Moses, for example, He'll be able to play for Lebanon, but his kids, if they were to turn out and be football players, they wouldn't be able to play for Lebanon. Or Lachlan Ilias, surely, uh, surely he, the he grandfather in, Greece, in you know? something
1: similar to the origin rules, where if your parent represented a country or a state in state of origin, you could be eligible to play for that uh, country too. You'd think that'd be the natural progression of that sort of rule, because like you said, maybe,
0: yeah, maybe that's something that they might end up looking at, similar to origin. Eligibility yeah, the, for, the, for these developing countries, but most definitely, it's mm, um because, like you said,
1: otherwise uh, it's a big issue for eligibility down the road. It's going to really di- dilute the um, the playing pools for these young and small
0: countries. But it, it's it's sure. outstanding, outstanding for Greece yes. in that um, rugby league was illegal. There wasn't it like weren't they training and I playing until earlier this year? Yeah. yeah, behind closed doors and secret locations and all sorts of scenarios going on just for them to play games.
2: That's exactly right, uh, 60s. And in a nutshell, basically, um, they weren't actually acknowledged as a national sport. So when they would play matches or train, the police would come and and threaten to shut things down. So they had to, uh, you know, post dummy locations on Facebook of where they were playing matches to sort of uh, put the the police in another uh, direction. Um, They had to play games on neutral venues. All their World Cup qualifiers for this World Cup were actually played in London because if they played it in Greece, they wouldn't have been allowed to. So (laughs) it's been huge. I think in August this year, they actually gained federal uh, recognition as a sport and the game will grow and it will continue to grow. Giving those domestic players, as you mentioned, 60s, the opportunity to be part of these squads is massive because they're going to come back to Greece and be treated as sort of heroes or looked up. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, from younger players as being idle. So it's really important. As you mentioned, great to see them there. The Italians did very, very well too. Like I was impressed by what I saw from them. Papua New. So a lot of, I was actually more impressed by a lot of losing teams, to be honest, like Greece and Lebanon and Papua New Guinea. Like valiant efforts and really good contributions from them in losing sides. So a really good opening round one of matches. Great to see. Rugby league on the world stage again. The international game is so important, and this World Cup is just proving that.
0: I, I have one low light. That's all. Not just one.
2: Wow, one. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now I'm not. I'm, I'm not. And it's going to have nothing to do with the teams or the players because I want them to be enjoying what they're experiencing over there. It is the English video referees. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, I, I mean, you literally, you could go when when it goes to the video ref. You could almost go and put the jug on, and sit and wait for the jug <laughs> to boil while you <laughs> while you wait for the decision to come in. And, and probably a lot of times the jug will boil before that the calls, mate. Like, it's funny because we complain about the NRL
1: bunker being slow oh, at times, but geez, maybe we do have a good.
0: <laughs> oh, uh-huh. there, there was what a that that decision on the Papua New Guinea try, how many times that they looked at that, it was, yeah. Uh, and they that, got it wrong.
2: And they, they, got they still right. got it wrong. wrong. Yep. yep. Um and the but, other low light as well, 60s, just quickly, I thought you were going to say this, is the numbering, the jersey numbering. How annoying uh, is it? You know, uh, seeing someone like Josh shadow wearing the number nine or Regan uh, Campbell-Gillard wearing the number six. Yeah. It, yeah, it uh, was a, not...
1: a novel idea, but I think it was Michael Hagan that was the uh, progenitor of that one. And I don't think it's worked as intended. And uh, I, it was interesting because there was an article about Mao sort of lamenting how he didn't really like the idea. It's like, well, Mao, you're the one that's in charge of the team. You could
0: <laughs> change the numbers. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm I'm no fan. Does it? I'm just thinking. Does that hark back to some of the kangaroo tours in the 1960s? Because I can remember footage of Reg Gaznia in those tours playing in the number seven jersey, and he was obviously a centre. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not a student of some of that old footage from the 60s, but um, it is one that stood out for me was uh, seeing him playing in a number seven jersey playing for Australia in England, and I think maybe Johnny Raper might have had a strange number on his back as well that didn't uh, fit in with the lock position. But um, anyway, uh, what about Parramatta players? Yeah, so any,
1: let's, any talk, let's talk. Let's talk the Eels. Nathan Brown obviously led the way in that Italian victory, boys, but a whole swathe of Eels performing in this game. Not the best for Junior Barlow in that loss to England, but I thought that Micah Siva was pretty good in Fiji's defeat against Australia. We already talked about uh, Brownie in Italy, but he was joined in that game by, uh, I think, Luca Moretti was a Parramatta Eel this year, and then you had Jack Colavati on the bench, and then on the other side of the field, former Eel Kyle Schneider, that's okay, but Luke Bain, he was with our reserve grade team this year. Uh, Continuing down the list here, we've got, uh, keep going, obviously Dylan, he was part of the uh, victory over the Lebanon team, the Cedars, so Dill and a couple of former Eels there in Ice and Murata. but on the other side of the field, I thought Mitch Moses was pretty handy, Uh, you had,
2: where are we now? Uh, Eli Alzakem. Eli Alzakem for the Lebanese
1: team too, that's correct, and then uh, Will Penicini was pretty handy in the Tonga victory over Papua New Guinea, and... And then the Cook Islands, obviously, Matt Cassie, Matt Catoa, you mentioned him coming off the bench, boys. Which of those ones impressed? Obviously, Nathan Brown, top of the list, but I think there were a couple of other good performers in that group too.
0: I think you have to take the opposition. Well, I'm going to take the opposition out of consideration there because it's, it's probably too hard to, um, to put a comparison across the entire field of Eels players. We, we've got something like about 16 players uh, across all the teams So assuming they were playing against equal opposition, which we know they aren't, uh, Nathan Brown, head and shoulders at the top of the list in terms of performances. Will Penasini up there. um, Obviously, uh, Nathan Brown was... uh, Oh, sorry, um, Dylan Brown was a uh, a strong performer. (coughs) They're probably my standouts, Mm -hmm. I think, from the the first week. I think there's... um, Again, it's going to come down to the the some of the coverage, the commentators are uh, getting used to the players as well, yes. and it was hard to pick up uh, some of the uh, players like uh, Luca Moretti and and Jack Colavardi and the work that they were doing unless you were specifically able to identify them in uh, dummy runs or hit ups or what have you because probably uh, seventy. of the time, their name wasn't called, even if they were the player that was doing the hit-up or making a tackle or what have you, simply because I suspect that the commentators just weren't familiar with them.
2: Yes. Well, you mentioned Luca Moretti. I I was impressed by him. I stayed up to watch the Italy match. I thought he did well. And also Eli He is, I think, going to maybe be close to possibly making his first-grade debut next year, especially if we cop a couple of injuries, touch wood. So I thought those two did well. Um, Mitch was – I thought Mitch was okay. He had, didn't have too much time with the team because he came over a bit later. He spent some time with his newborn before heading over to the U.K. And it was – I did enjoy watching uh, Dylan play against Mitchell. I think at first, Dylan went up and, and put a big hit on <laughs> Mitch and he coughed up the ball or made an error or something. So that was funny. And a special mention to Junior Balor, captain of the Samoan team, the Tau. Uh, the was it's the Samoan war dance that they do at the start of the game. He led it, and what a way! What a great job he did. So special mention to Junior for that contribution as well. So round one. Um, I was oh sorry. There you, go, you
0: go. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. Um, does the round two of pool matches get any better? Uh, uh, yeah, so I think Australia they're probably on about a par. Yeah, Australia
1: Scotland kick it off five uh, thirty a.m. Saturday. Uh, and then you've got Fiji, Italy, England, France, New Zealand, Jamaica, Lebanon, Ireland, Samoa, Greece. Uh, you got Tonga, Wales, Papua New Guinea versus Cook Islands, and that's the final book. Final, sorry, game for round two. Then it's round three off the bat.
0: Yeah, well, you probably. probably I, don't, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing potential for some major, major blowouts there. Uh, that I, I fear sure. for the scoreline in New Zealand and Jamaica. Um, If I'm trying to pick my highlight game, uh, look, I, I really don't know that there's going to be a game which I'm going to suggest will be a cracker like the Papua New Guinea and Tongan game was.
2: You probably pinpoint three key games in the second round of pool matches which are really important in the scheme of things when it comes to who's going to progress to the finals. The first is Fiji v Italy, the winner of that match will probably progress to the finals. I think Fiji should win it, but you give the Italians a slight chance based on their performance in the last match. You've got Lebanon v. Ireland. The winner of that game will probably progress. It's a tight one. Lebanon, no Adam Dwahi, which is a huge loss, but I think they could win. Uh, I'm going to tip Lebanon in that match. And then Papua New Guinea v. Cook Islands. You tip Papua New Guinea, but the winner of that match uh, will most likely progress to the finals. So there are three... Key matches, but I agree with you. Sixties very worried about some blowout scorelines, especially in the New Zealand v Jamaica match. Now you look at the the betting markets. Uh, New Zealand are paying one dollar, Jamaica two hundred and fifty-one dollars. So it's going to be it's going to be pretty harsh. I think maybe
1: there's a couple of times that actually aren't even paying. I think
2: a century
0: a century is going to happen. That's that's what you'd be. uh,
1: if you're talking about value, the the Cedars two forty five to Ireland's one fifty five, there could be a, a sneaky little flutter there from sixties. I reckon.
0: Uh, yeah, I could bring Lebanon crashing down to <laughs> earth dramatically. <laughs> there, yeah. uh, um, I, I I I will seriously look at that because um, it it might be that I'll go and have a um, uh, maybe a bit of a, a multi mm-hmm. on a couple of games, but and anchor it with the. Um, Definitely, the uh, there is tremendous value. I think in that uh, Lebanon game against Ireland. I just think it's um, uh, they, they've got too many class players Lebanon compared to the Irish, and that's no disrespect to the Irish, and especially with uh, Kiri playing for them. But yeah, I I, I think they. They played about as well as they possibly could. The Irish, so uh, I'll, I'll I'll take Lebanon there. So um, <laughs> that uh, that pretty much wraps. Yeah, up
1: round one of the World, World Cup. Up. So we'll check back in in a week's time when round two has all shook out and we sort of have an idea of who's going to progress through with some obviously key head, uh, sort of matchups in round three to be the tiebreakers or the final deciders. But given some of those results, we're going to sort of put teams ahead into almost unassailable positions. We should have a good idea. Let's talk news, boys. As pointed to get through, we got to power through it. We start on a very somber note, sending our condolences to the Hampson family and their friends uh, after Liam Hampson was found dead in Spain. Real tragic one, boys. Uh, I think he'd been missing for thirty hours uh, in terms of our, our our side of operations, but he was found uh, in a was it a a bed of a garden bed after falling off a balcony and just absolutely tragic stuff all around.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably not too much that we can add other than to send our condolences and, um, you know, just it's always a time then when you think to yourself, um, you know, let your friends know how special they are to you, let your family know how how special they are because, you know, you you never know when life takes a a turn that's completely unexpected.
2: Yeah, very sad news, condolences to the family and when I saw – Unfortunately, that post being shared around, I I really did have grave concerns for this young guy because in Europe, this time of year, nightclubs, you just don't know what's going to happen. So it's awful. Uh, I know that Paddy Carrigan's going to be playing in honour of him and the the Kangaroos will be playing in honour of him on uh, Saturday morning. So yeah, very, very tragic news for an up-and-coming rugby league star in Queensland.
1: And we now go to Manly, where there's been a, a whole swathe of updates here on the coaching situation, on the uh, staffer situation, on player attentions. So uh, we've got big time coaching updates. Obviously, Anthony Seibold being the main man there, but Spiro Shane Flanagan, uh, assistant coach, Christy Fulton sacked as the uh, sort of the power brokers at Manly flex their muscles. And we had a couple of significant player attentions today uh, from the, among the the group that sort of created that initial division. Uh, with Halamoli uh, Alkawatu and Jason Saab re-upping their state at the club. Where do you want to start with this one, boys?
2: Oh, I think you you start with the whole Des thing just briefly. I mean, this that was the beginning of the end for a lot of parts of this club. We've seen dominoes fall after that. As you mentioned, Christy uh, Fulton today being um, you know made redundant from her role in pathways at the club. But it's, it's questionable because to get rid of someone like Des Hasler and bring in a replacement in Anthony Seabold, your mind does uh, boggle a little bit. Why would you get rid of someone? I know that Des didn't have the best season, but last year they made a prelim with a fit side. You, don't forget this year they had Tommy Turbo out for most of the season and they had injuries and, and whatnot. So you've got to cut Manley a bit of slack. I think they should have let him see out the last year of his contract. And if he proved himself and, and had a great performance and took him to another prelim or a grand final in season 2023, maybe they would have re-signed him. But I guess um, you know the ownership didn't want to uh, pursue anything further with Dez. I don't know how good Seba is going to be. I feel that, that he's too structured as a coach and maybe that won't help Manly too much and their culture and DNA is going to have to change a bit because all the players love Dez. You heard uh, Josh Schuster mention that he's still in communication with Dez uh, on a somewhat daily basis to see how he's going with his training regime and, and his schedule for next year. So they all love Dez. It's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of the playing group. And I'm not too sure about Seabold returning as head coach. It hasn't been confirmed yet. They're rumored. The same with Shane Flanning. And I spoke to Shane. I've spoken to him in the last 24 hours. And the messaging from him to me is that at this stage, nothing's been confirmed. Nothing has been formalized. He has had a discussion with Anthony Siebold, but nothing has been set in stone so at this stage next year he'll be doing his media commitments with 2gb and fox and uh, as a and work as a list manager at the dragons and that's it so it's all up in the air i'm not too sure about manly going forward though. Uh, well I, i look at
0: it and there's two possibilities you're either looking at it being all political and uh power play there with um how des perhaps challenged the owners in terms of the control uh, within the club and his influence within the club. Secondly, we know they had a split club this year. And there was either going to have to be, A, a massive clean-out of the playing staff, or B, a change of coach. And what way do the clubs normally go when this happens? (laughs) The easiest easiest thing is to get rid of the coach. And uh, I I think it was going to be, coming into next year, I just had that feeling that it was going to be untenable for – and despite the fact that the players were um, seemingly united behind Des Hasler, they didn't play like a united group. They just didn't play like a united group. So I think think it was a a case of they needed a fresh – a clean slate – they needed to feel like it was a fresh start. They would have achieved that by getting rid of a having a big turnover on the on the uh, roster. They couldn't get the big turnover of the roster so the the best way to get a fresh start and different expectations is to bring in a new coach. and like Spiro, I don't know whether Seabold is going to be the right person for their culture um, but you know what that's rugby league. We'll see we'll soon see how it goes.
2: And saying this unbiasedly, just very quickly, I would put Shane Flanagan in as their head coach rather than Anthony Seabold. Flano, he's a proven winner. He's a success. You know, I think Anthony Seabold was a one-hit wonder, had a good season at the the Rabbitohs, went to the Broncos, didn't really do much, and that was it. So if I was the boss at Manly, first of all, I would have kept Des there for another year. Give him another year. Give him a chance, right? The group love him. But Flano should have been their number one option as a head coach bring him there as an assistant. I don't even know if Flano actually wants that. He wants another chance. I know that. He wants to coach again. He's told me that. But as an assistant, I don't think so. I think he wants to be the leader. I think he wants to be the head coach. And he may sit tight and wait for a head coaching uh, position to come up at the Dragons, which could very well happen. So that that's my take on it all.
0: Now, I'd question without any sort of notice at all, Spiro, and, and I may well be putting you on the spot with this. But you've got to know shane flanagan uh you know reasonably well in uh via the media commitments that he has with 2gb as when uh when you have a a former coach who gets involved in the media and uh, you know from the outside looking in it seems to me like he thoroughly enjoys being involved in the media and i was listening to him have a bit of a chat with mark levy uh, yesterday afternoon, I think it was, and there was um there was some really good banter between the two when Shane Flanagan started off and said uh, he's not going to claim all the credit for Papua New Guinea's performance, but he will he will claim most of it. <laughs> and um and and I thought to myself, you sound like a very relaxed individual at the moment that you're in a good headspace. That um you know, and I I wondered then in listening to it whether head coach is is still in his blood or whether media is becoming more in his blood with um the potential to be doing consultancy or assistant coaching giving him the the that hands-on aspect that he might still crave i mean how do you see that is would he give up media in a heartbeat to go back to being a head coach or or, or do you think he, he loves he, – he's becoming
2: more enamoured with media? Look, I, I've had many conversations with Shane about this, dealt with him on a frequent basis, and he loves what he does. He loves doing his Fox. He loves doing his 2GB on a Saturday. He's going to be uh, also co-hosting one of our programs during the week next year. So his duties with us at 2GB have upped the ante for season 2023, and he loves it. He enjoys it. I think he's got a lot better at it. You know, a lot of the listeners of the Cumberland Throw would have heard Flano commentating on Fox throughout the year. And the insight that he provides as a former coach is fantastic. It's brilliant. And I think he's a massive asset to us at 2GB, but also at Fox. He enjoys what he does. But in saying that, I think that Flano wants just one more go. I think he he's, thinks he's got unfinished business. He wants to have one more go, a couple more years, As a head coach, that's why I just don't think he's going to take this assistant role at Manly. Uh, That's my gut feeling based on my discussions with him. I just don't think he's going to want to take it. I think he's going to wait, see what happens at the Dragons this year, and he may have one last throw of the dice as a head coach uh, at the Dragons and see what happens after that. But, you know, I have spoken to him about this multiple times and he says, I love what I do. I've got no stress. I've got no pressure. I've spoken to Shane's wife about it, and she agrees as well. She's happy with him doing what he's doing now. You know, it pays the bills. You know, it, and and he enjoys it. That's the main thing. I mean, it's not about money. It's about what does your heart want to do, and what does your career want to do, and what's good for your mental health, and what's good for your your well being. And I think he loves what he does in the media. He'll probably keep doing it. But If the right offer comes his way in a head coaching capacity, that might be at the Dragons he may have one last throw the die. So I think head coaching still in his blood.
0: Yeah, no, interesting insight there, Spiro. It was just, you know, that was – I just, as, as I said, from an outsider looking in, he just seemed like someone who's in a good head space and enjoying what he's doing and uh, maybe he just enjoys being with um, the likes of yourself, mate, over, <laughs> at 2GB. <laughs>
2: well, we have a great time, you know, and over two years, I've really got to know Flano well. And he's a brilliant guy, and he does. He enjoys every moment. He loves being there. We have great banter. As you hear in the interviews, we all love him. We love having him around the place. He loves the, the interactions with us as well. So he is. He's in a brilliant headspace. And if I was him, I wouldn't give it up. Keep doing what you're doing. No stress. No pressure. Rock up. Do your thing. Have some downtime during the week. He's a grandfather. He's got a grandson. He's got young kids. And and I guess he wants to enjoy that a little bit as well. So Yeah, he he is in a great headspace. That's the truth. But if the right opportunity comes begging, I think I just have a feeling that he may take it, but this manly one is not it. Yep.
1: All right, big news in a general sense of rugby league, boys. Peter Volandis had a bit of a state-of-the-game address. I think uh, it was uh, late last week, I think now. But essentially, he laid out the groundwork for the code moving forwards, talking about potential expansion for 2028 to bring uh, equilibrium to the draw to 18 teams and whatnot but the two big ones out of this were the salary cap from 2023 moving forwards the floor will be set at a minimum of 11 million dollars up from nine and a half as it stands right now significant jump obviously and it explains how some teams have been very aggressive with their recruitment retention uh i obviously might have had a bit of an insight when i sort of point towards a certain team in blue and white uh but that's going to affect the upcoming preseason uh recruitment and whatnot beyond the other thing was the first draft of a uh trade window which has been rejected by the rlpa but this is what the initial draft was that our uh, players in their final year of a contract can begin negotiating with a recruiting club an external club and that window starts after the grand final and closes before the monday before round one uh, there is a mid-season trade window where players and clubs agree to mutually uh, terminate a contract this one will start from the monday after round 10 carries through to the monday after origin free there is a uh, equally a pre-season trade window which goes from the, uh, same, uh, the same sort of window as the main trade window which is Monday after the grand final to the Monday before round one uh, for players and clubs that want to mutually terminate a contract. So that's the pre-season trade window. The other key points are that the incumbent club, so the player that or the club that has a player's contract at any point can renegotiate and extend a player at any time to they, they don't need to work within these windows New contract uh, year starts on November 1, which I thought was what the case was right now. I thought that the uh, contract for a player starts in November 1, but apparently maybe not. And then our uh, top 30 rosters need to be finalized on the Monday after State of Origin 3, which is that date that we talked about with the mid-season transfers. That's being knocked back by the RLPA. I think there were some strong words, 60s, by the rep. Uh, uh, what's his name? The, the former... Uh, Clint New- Newton. that's yeah, right, the former Knight and Panther, I think it is had some very strong words, which I don't necessarily agree with because it's talking about restriction of trade and whatnot and all those sort of things. But uh, as from my point of view, this is almost a cosmetic change to the current system. It feels like, yeah, there's some deadlines that have been moved around, but everything would be very much the same as it is. There is no talk about teeth to the punishment for players and clubs and managers caught tampering outside of his windows, which is the big thing when you talk about trade windows is, you know, you have uh, all the shady stuff that happens under the table. You need to be able to have some real teeth to that punishment and as it stands. I think this is just more of a same, honestly.
0: Yeah, uh, look, I can see your point of view. They're definitely 40. Um, I think if they're able to enforce that with that counter in terms of the, um, you know, punishment for clubs don't do the right thing, then you, you may have close to the the best possible scenario, but given that the RLPA has just said um, where, you know, this is, uh, you're talking about restraint and restriction. They were the two words that uh, I think was used uh, by Clint Newton. Now let that be a signal to anyone who keeps talking about um, the player draft. That's been talked about so many times in the past. If they think that, it's a a restraint and restriction to talk about when salary, uh, new contracts can be uh, talked about. You can almost guarantee that as in, as has happened in the past, anything that puts players into a draft system, that's something that I think is a restraint and restriction. So there's no way a draft's ever going to happen.
1: I do love a good draft system in certain sports. I mean, obviously, as a fan of American sports, it's, it's really intrinsic to the NFL, to the NBA, to baseball, to hockey, all of them. They use a draft system. But it is the antithesis of what Rugby Week is. Oh,
0: know? yeah,
1: Yeah, so it just goes against the fabric of, of Rugby Week play development, of junior clubs being linked to NRL clubs and, and that whole journey to first grade. So, yeah, I, I'm completely with anyone that's against the NRL draft. But, yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it is such a strong indicator that the RLPA would never – Allow a, a player draft to be established in the NRL.
0: Look, I hope so, that they get back to the negotiating table and come up with something. I, ju- I just don't
1: know what. I mean, usually this is all about concessions, right? You know, one one yeah. side asks for something and the other side says no, but if you do this, maybe. I just don't know what the players want out of this because this is really not that much of a difference. Uh, I don't know. But the, yeah, the big uh, thing, the big thing for me, eleven million dollars salary cap, boys. What's it mean for Parramatta? Obviously, we've got some big time extensions looming. Dylan Brown, Mitchell Moses, uh, Will Pennacini, is all yeah, they're money.
0: the three. They're they're the three big ones, I guess. Now that the Eels have got a better bit of a better idea how much money that they've got to spend, therefore how much they can offer, and it's not just about next year. It's about well, it. it I mean, in terms of the cap that we're spending next year, I guess it was locked into an extent anyway because all of those players are currently under contract, but. It's it's moving forward, and then and then looking to see. I guess a lot of clubs might try and use the the, the uh, an upgrade in a current contract as a, as an enticement. Um, like in the final year of this, maybe they they look to that and go, you know what, we've got a bit of money to play with. We'll will bring the upgrade in immediately, and that's the inducement to to um, to for the player to sign on. Um, let's hope that it is a. Uh, a way that the eels are able to get this locked up and locked up soon.
2: And well, just quickly on the on the trade window, just I want to weigh in just on that briefly. I really like the idea. I know the RLPA have come out and slammed it, but I think ethically going forward, that's the best way that the NRL should operate, where players are only negotiating once they've finished that season commitments with the club. And instead of like you know I right signed I think December twenty twenty one with the Tigers and he won't play for them until March twenty twenty three. There's so much layover time, and I think that just affects things for for the player, for the other members in his team, for the club, for both clubs really, and even Isaiah Papali. Well, we don't, don't want to go really- through that. We don't
0: want to see players and teams go through that. You know, we didn't no. want to it. we didn't want to see it as ill supporters with ice. And you know what? The Tigers didn't want to see... And look, they've got their man in the end, but they didn't want to have all that crap going on through the season. Now, now that's no all...
2: So I think that needs to change for the better. I think that something needs to be done there. I'm not sure exactly what the best way forward is, but it needs to change because we saw with Isaiah Papali'i that it fell flat on its face. The same with Api Korosau, right? I think Api handled it so well the whole year up until how he handled things after the grand final. But moral of the story is... That needs to change, and the RLPA need to work out some sort of middle ground with the players going forward.
1: Unfortunately, boys, I am pressed for time. So we're going to have to punch through his last few points or talking points rather quickly, but uh, long being talked about, finally confirmed, the player swap between Tyron Peachy and Charlie Staines has come to full fruition. Peachy going back to the Panthers, Charlie Staines joining the West Tigers. What's that mean for these two clubs? Anything significant, or is this more, you know, shuffling deck chair sort of situation?
0: Well, there's been a rumour floating around, hasn't there, that um, there might be a a, uh, a bit of a swap with the Eels with Nathan Brown and uh, the Tigers with their dummy half. Help me out for the name there.
1: Uh, oh, for- my goodness. The, uh, the young one. Let's see if I can find his name. <laughs> I know exactly who you mean. Simpkins. Simpkins.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a bit of a loose rumour floating around out there. Uh nothing that's come from within Eels territory, I can assure people it's it's one that's been out there in a bit of social media. So but I, I don't think that would be a straight out swap because the, the two players are obviously on vastly different contracts. But if you've got West Tigers indicating that they're a club that doesn't mind doing some sort of uh swap as part of a, a player uh, contract situation, then maybe maybe that might end up with some legs in it. So uh, I guess we watch that space. I don't know that there's any, anything more that we really could take out of that because it seems like. Um, it's an interesting both one for Penriff club because club they've got, they've they've got
1: a couple of utility guys, utility forwards on the bench already in Jamin Salmon and and company, uh, Sorensen and whatnot. So I'm not really sure how Peachy fits into the fabric for them, but uh, he's hey. a guy that's familiar with the systems um, and has played his best football at Penriff. So I imagine he'll get back to something resembling his best. For the Tigers, Charlie Staines, does he play wing? Does he play fullback? What's the outlook there?
2: Probably on the wing. You'd keep Dan Laurie at fullback, I'd say, and you'd have Staines on the wing. I think he's a great pickup for the Tigers. A lot of people sort of uh, underselling him, but I think it's a loss for the Panthers. He's, a gr- he's been a great backup uh, utility back player in the fullback position, in the wing position, but I think he slots in on the wing at the Tigers and his career goes to the next level.
0: And he's got that maybe a little bit of a uh, combination there with Dane Laurie as well. So from back of their time together at the Panthers. So For sure, um, you know it's uh, being having uh, a couple of players in the back three that have history together, and uh, obviously do get on. Uh, then that can only be a positive.
2: And when you think about it, just very very briefly, right? You talk about Panthers players in that Tigers team. They're going to have. Part of that spine, as you mentioned, the fullback in Dane Laurie, the hooker in Api Corasau, plus I don't know what James Tamo is going to do, but if James Tamo is in the front row and Charlie Staines, you got four Panthers juniors or former four, four former Panthers players in their lineup, which could be great for the Tigers.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. So um, who knows? They might be going to perform mm-hmm. a bit better than we uh, are anticipating.
1: And for all the good news and the, the nice stuff that we've talked about this podcast, boys, unfortunately it's been a pretty rough off season for the NRL in general. We'll go through a trio of, uh, I wouldn't say black eyes, but some uh, you know sort of misgivings and, and bad news, starting with uh, Craig Young, who has been uh, drawn into the firing line and been criticised for using the official Dragons letterhead uh, in a letter of character reference for Brett Finch, who obviously faces some pretty serious charges. We've spoken about that in the past. Don't need to go back into that, but yeah, not not a great look for Craig Young. I understand, you know, you have a letter of character reference for someone that you know and have worked with, that's fine, but you can't really use the official letterhead for the dragons when it's not an official capacity, right?
0: Yeah, and look, I think there's something to be said about using your common sense with this sort of thing. Uh, it was an official thing with, uh, from my understanding, like within the school system, that if I wanted a, a letter of reference from uh, a person who had been a, a, a principal... Um, at a school that I'd worked at that it would have to be a personal reference not one on departmental letterhead because mm-hmm. it's because of the fact that it is a it would be a personal reference so uh, I, you know I think that there's a lot to be said for um, people in organizations giving personal references that it doesn't go on the letterhead of the organization that they work for because it's uh, you know you it, it's more like an organization, is more than that a person that holds that position. And for when they unilaterally make a decision, you know what, I'm going to give a personal reference and I'm going to put it on the letterhead of the organisation that I work for. Man, you're leaving yourself open, especially if it's a legal case like this. Uh, Just poorly advised. It's hard to believe that a a man of his experience, not just in club football, but also in his role in the police force in the past, would, would do that. But anyway... We, I guess we move on. So there, there's a bit more legal stuff yeah, going more,
1: on. More legal stuff. Uh, if uh, Brett Finch is in the process of uh, his court case, one court case that came to a conclusion now was that of Jamil Hopawate. He's been sentenced to a maximum of three years, nine months uh, imprisonment for his role as a cocaine courier in a $150 million plus cocaine ring. Uh, unfortunately for Jamil, he's quite literally pissed away a pretty handy NRL career. With uh, his side, or maybe the NRL was the Side Gig Boys, but the Side Gig is a cocaine courier, uh, and yeah, he's come about and gotten. I suppose he's just here.
0: Oh, you know what? It's it has to be upsetting for all those players out there who bust a gut to make the most of what opportunities they have, and maybe maybe they're players who haven't got some of the natural talents that a, a Jamil Hoppawati, uh might have possessed. But it, you know, it's it must frustrate. Um, players that you know maybe he's got a, an opp- had an opportunity ahead of in the past to see him um, spoil his own uh, career and his own chances in the, in the way that he has. I
2: agree with you on that one it's,
1: there's not much you can say is there he's done something very very stupid and and frankly uh, you know just under four years of in- imprisonment at a maximum is pretty generous from the uh, judicial system so he can't complain too much last one. We spoke about this when it was developing, boys. Josh Curran, he was out in Port Macquarie, I believe, uh, at a nightclub. He's been charged with assault, occasioning grievous bodily harm and copped another charge of larceny for stealing the young boy's phone who was filming him. Uh, So that uh, assault, occasioning grievous bodily harm was because he knocked out several teeth from the young man whose face he punched very, very hard. This is going to be an interesting one, boys, because... That charge, just by itself, the assault occasioning grievous bodily harm, can attract somewhere around 10 or 10-plus 10 years, which puts it right in the range of the uh, no-fault stand-down. Lasting itself uh, can go from anywhere between 1 to 5, I think, if my basic research was on, on the point, which means that he would be over that 11-year threshold potentially. Is this a case of no-fault stand-down for Current until this is resolved?
0: I think it has to be.
1: It, and you talk about 60s. Plays that have been given these
2: based on previous, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And you talk yeah. about
1: players being given these almost gilded opportunities, and and then pissing it away. Josh Curran had just broken out the New Zealand Warriors, and he was going to cash in. And now suddenly his NRL career has been put on pause because he couldn't control his temper.
0: Yeah, and, he and, is, and that's what I'm saying. It's you that that rule is there for a reason, and it's hard to uh, you know unless there was some sort of evidence that proves otherwise like it's that he's done some serious damage to a bloke that he's attacked. It's, you know, it's a serious charge that he's facing. So it has to apply. It, It has to apply.
1: And that's uh thankfully the end of all the negative stuff. Hopefully when we reconvene next week with the round two of the world cup played out, there'll be some positive news. I suppose the big thing is no Parramatta news boys. It's been very quiet for us. Um, and it probably will be until we get back to November 1 training where we hopefully see some of our new recruits, the Hodgson's, the Mama Sears, the uh, Hopgood's, taking part in preseason training for the young kids.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, as you mentioned, pretty quiet on the Eels front at the moment. few little rumours floating around about who we might recruit. Simpkin wouldn't be a bad pickup as a backup dummy half. Mm-hmm. I know we've got Mitch Rain in there, but a young bloke in Simpkin – it might be worth picking up at Parramatta there's talk about maybe to power not going to Parramatta uh, rumors you know linked him to the club early this year but that might not be the case so a few things but nothing really major yeah. paralyzed yes
0: yeah, so- no we
2: we just had we uh, attended
0: the junior rugby league presentation night which was really a recognition of the uh, of the clubs and the volunteers that work in the clubs in the Parramatta district Junior rugby league that was held on Tuesday night. For anyone that hasn't visited TCT since the season ended, there is a post there which outlines the uh, the various award winners on the night. Needless to say, the Hills District yeah, Bulls Hills District had, had, had a, a pretty impressive uh, night of receiving awards. But um, also a shout-out to uh, Sam Tuavati, mm-hmm. who was the uh, Junior Rugby League Player of the Year, and... Um, he he's was certainly a worthy recipient there and my goodness is he growing yeah,
1: what, definitely definitely want the watcher star in our <laughs> Harold Matthews program he's yeah. progressing to the SG ball in the next season and yeah definitely a player of the future
0: yeah and uh just on eels training we should see the the first of the players return on the 7th of november 7th not the first, so, there uh there the that'll be the uh, some of the younger players that have been um, given the opportunity of doing an NRL preseason. I think you've got a group of players that generally get like a, a, a short period of preseason prior to Christmas or or a six week preseason. Um, that in fact that was how Reed Marnie started his NRL career with with Parramatta when he was elevated from the uh, NYC to do a six week preseason, and it was in a World Cup year. Uh, back then, in uh, at the end of twenty seventeen, and uh, and his his performance in the preseason, when there would have been more staff there than there were players, um, <laughs> made him a standout uh, in a, in a small group of players. He then was offered an extension of that into the new year. He again continued to excel with all the players returning, and that led to him uh, making his first grade debut in twenty eighteen. So. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Have a look at those players who come back. Uh, we're we're sort of trying to work out who they are. We we have a few names that we're aware of, but uh, we'll get look to get up there in yeah, uh, of early course, November. As that plays out, we're
1: up. going to have all your notes and tips coming in on TCT. So always look forward to the preseason training reports. But I think, boys, until that stuff gets going, we'll probably just talk about World Cup and NRL news. And I think it's a good place to wrap it up this week. Hope everyone enjoyed the. Uh, Different uh, sort of pace for this podcast with the RLWC focus, and we'll catch you guys in the next
0: episode. Yeah, and I'll, oh, and just before we go, a special shout-out to uh, Kennedy Cherrington with her generosity at uh, donating the prize money that she mm-hmm. received for winning that uh, NRLW uh, Community Award um, going over to Western Australia and donating her prize money to... Uh, The Western Australia Rugby League female partner. Champion
1: on and off the field.
0: Absolutely amazing of her to do that. So, um, yeah, but uh, mate, as always, go the eels.